All right, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kim, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Hey, Kim. And the next section, what we're going to do is we're going to split up the chapter working with others. So I'm going to do pages 89 to 95, and then Maria will do pages 96 to 103. And, um, and as she was talking, I really thought of something uh, when she went over the different areas that talks about we have to. That word imperative is just it's such a strong word. So I, I had written down in my book because in the doctor's opinion, when it talks about, when Bill's talking about um, interceding between the two letters of Dr. Silkworth, it says, more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he had better have a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So they're really stressing how, step one, it's imperative that our brain be cleared, right? And then what Maria read is on page 14, where it says, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles of all, all my affairs. Particularly, it was imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. So it kind of links up steps 1 and 12 together with that word. And I never really saw that until Maria was talking, so I think that's fabulous. Um, the other thing I just want to mention as we're going over this, if you're not at step 12, I found was helpful when people were going over step 12 was to ask, am I sponsorable? You know, we're, being, we're teaching here in this chapter what we do with sponsees. So the question is, are you willing to do this stuff? So I think it's a way for you to approach it if, if you're not at step 12. Um, so let's go to page 89. And that first sentence, big awakening there, it says, Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. And... I never wanted anything more in my life than to have immunity from drinking. Like I, that, I never even knew that was possible that I could have immunity from my from my from compulsive overeating. But I was listening to on YouTube. There was a gentleman, not an AA, just a gentleman getting his um, his doctorate, and he decided to do his history doctorate on Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think he met Bill because it was right around the early '70s, right before Bill died. And one of the things I heard him say on this YouTube thing was that he feels that AA worships the first 100 too much. And not enough credit is given to those who didn't make it. And a lot of these musts and these always and these nevers is because of what they learned from what didn't work. So sometimes I like to flip this sentence around. and says, practical experience shows that those who don't work with others drink again. And that's been my experience. You know, I, I really thought that only the gurus in a way would sponsor. You know what I mean? I didn't need a sponsor. That was other people's jobs. But the... But the the absolute necessity of sponsoring was never really stressed to me, at least in my memory. Um, so what I wanted to kind of think of is, is the same thing what Maria was saying. I, the, the word sponsor is not in the big book. So I like to say these are the people I'm working with. It just feels more uh, natural for me. Um, so I have to, to get quiet with my higher power. How can I most effectively carry this message? So I have to think about, you know, what you know, what type of person am I? I'm someone that is an evening person. Like I don't do well in the morning. To sponsor someone in the morning, I'm not paying attention. I work full time, not in the afternoon. So when is the time that you can be 100% available? Are you morning, afternoon, evening person? You know, how do you want to handle the food? Do you want them to commit it daily? Do you want them to do it via the phone, via the email? Do you not want to deal with the food at all? You know, um, what are you going to require? You know, those tools support our step work. So are you going to require phone calls or meetings or writing? Because 
we're going to read in a couple pages that we're asking someone if they're going to go to any length. And I don't think there's anyone who hasn't been to two or three 12-step programs that wouldn't say, absolutely, I'll do anything, until you ask them to do something. So what you want to do is tell them what you require, because we're allowed to require stuff, and that is what they're, that is what they're um, accept, you know, agreeing to. And we need to be clear. Like, for example, with me, um, which is very common in a way, people want someone to talk to every day. I don't do that. I talk to people three days a week. I find that works best for me. It allows me to help more people. If they're looking for someone to talk to every day, I have to be upfront that that's not who I am. You know, if, if they're looking for a food sponsor, which is very common, I had to be honest with that. I don't food sponsor. I sponsor the 12 steps, and we incorporate the food in there. I'm not someone who just is someone's diet buddy. So we have to be, you know, not only kind of think about what we, what we offer, but what don't we offer. And then we're going to learn that what, we, what works with the first person, I kind of consider it like dating. I think I want this kind of guy, and then I date that kind of guy, and I'm like, ooh, don't want that kind of guy. So I find things that work, and I find things that don't work. So what we're going to do is go through here and give the instructions, but then it's our own personalities. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of a 12-step fellowship is diversity. Some people are a little bit stronger. Some people are a little bit softer. And that, you know, we're going to attract people to us who need to hear the message the way that we carry it. Um, so if we go to that second paragraph, this is what's called um, the 12-step promises. You know, life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you. If I want a fellowship to grow up about me, I better get in the middle of it. Okay. Um, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. You know, if you had told me, you know, when I first got into OA, what my life would be like today, I would think you're crazy. But it has taken on new meaning. I, I am so grateful that on a beautiful fall day that I get to spend this time with you. You know, I always think of this one time I was approached, and uh, I'm an you know, Irish Catholic school kid, and, and I was approached by some women in Muncie, New York, to go up there and do a five-hour workshop, and I asked a friend of mine who is an African-American woman who grew up in the, you know, the holy sanctified Bible-thumping Bible stuff, but she's now an agnostic. And we went up to Muncie, New York, which is a highly Orthodox Jewish area, and we sat in the bottom of someone's house, which was also a synagogue, with all Orthodox women for five hours on Memorial Day weekend. And I gotta tell you, it was better than any Memorial Day weekend. I mean, if you had told me that I, you know, I could be a, have a good Memorial Day weekend that didn't involve the boardwalk and those, um, those funnel cakes, I would have thought you were crazy. But that's what happens here is life takes on new meaning. It, to me, it's much more fulfilled meaning. But i got to get in the mix to do that. Um, it says in the first sentence of the, of the last paragraph, perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. That's a big thing. I know a lot of compulsive overeaters. I don't know a lot that want to recover, though. I know a lot of people that want nothing to do with OA. I know a lot of people in OA that want to sit in meetings and just complain about their day. I know a lot of people that just want to diet, and they want to get the heck out of OA. So it takes time to find people who actually want to do this work. You know, so um, what we're going to see in the next couple pages is how they how they found people. Because you've got to remember when this book came out, there was no Alcoholics Anonymous. So the premise was someone from Kentucky or Oregon or, or Texas was going to call New York, get this book, 
mailed to them. They were going to have a spiritual experience working through these steps, and then they were going to have to go out into the general population and find people to work with. We don't need to do that today. We can just go to a meeting. I do not suggest you go leave here and go to McDonald's and stand in line and start trying to recruit people for OA, okay? We don't need to do that. There's plenty of people in the rooms to do that. But the technique doesn't change. So that is what we're going to do. And, and I just wanted to, and this is my, I would like to say what's my opinion, but I wanted to kind of dovetail off of something Maria said. The, the chapter working with others comes after step 11. I think if Bill wanted us to work with other people earlier, he put have made chapter 11, maybe chapter 4. We have to have a spiritual awakening in order to be available to people. And like she said, that's different than sharing our experience. I often have my sponsees at step three called newcomers, step five, to share what that experience is like. But my personal opinion is, in a way, it's really, really critical. Because we are a fellowship that is gifted and challenged that, that we don't all have the same allergy. And if I don't have neutrality around my food, how am I going to help someone discover what food they have to put down? And once again, my opinion, I think that's why we have so many sects in OA that are united around a food plan. That they, they go to meetings where only people eat exactly like them. Because they don't have neutrality and therefore the fear makes them get together with people who eat like them. There are actually 17 other food fellowships besides OA. We have, we have sex in OA, but there's actually 17 separate um, food fellowships. And they're all based around a food plan. So... What I, I do is I work with people, I don't care what their food plan is, I work with people who are in actually other 12-step fellowships, I work with people in a way that work in these sects, because if the food plan's working for you and you're abstinent, great, but, but you need a spiritual awakening in order to not pick up again. So I just think that's so critical in our fellowship specifically, that we need to have that neutrality in order to be able to help someone go through the doctor's opinion, instead of what happens, I think, a lot of times is we inflict our food plan on other people because it works for us and we assume it's going to work for other people. Um, okay, so let's go to page 90. So it's talking here, um, the first paragraph. When we discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, we find out all we can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. And once again, that's stressing the fact that we have to be abstinent in order to do this work. And if someone doesn't want to be abstinent, then we can't help them get through the rest of the steps. Doesn't mean we're not friendly, doesn't mean that we're not talking with them, but as far as doing the work, they need to put the food down. Now, it's also saying to find out all you can about them because you want to see how we, what we would like to do if we would be approached. So I, you know, this is a miracle too. I am very lucky. I have been morbidly obese, I have been bulimic, and I've also been underweight. So I try to find out what part of the disease is that person suffering from because I'm not going to tell someone who's morbidly obese about the anxiety of being underweight and I'm not going to tell someone who's underweight about the anxiety of being obese. You know, I also try to find out. It talks about, you know, you know, are they coming from a religious background, an agnostic background, an atheistic background? I really try to keep my um my language very generic with with higher power instead of God. So I don't want to, you know, bring up any prejudices. I also try to find out, are they brand new to OA? Have they never heard of a 12-step program before? Or are they someone like me who's been around for decades coming in and out? You know, have they ever done the big book? You know, are they someone just coming from a tools background? Are they coming from another fellowship? That's a lot of prejudices come in if someone's coming in from AA or NA or Al-Anon. 
So I, if I find out a lot about that, that helps me approach them in a way that they might be more, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm having a hard time with language today, easier for them. So the, 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 not only is it the approach have to do with what you say, but it's a lot of listening and a lot of trying to find that out. So in that second paragraph, it talks, um, don't deal with him when he is really drunk unless he is ugly and family needs help. Wait for the end of a spree or a lucid interval. Then let his family, family or friend ask him if he wants to quit for good and if he would go to any extreme to do so. So that's one of the reasons I personally love my home group. My home group is on Sunday mornings at the Cherry Hill JFK Hospital at 9 a.m. We get a lot of people that were binging Saturday night and a lot of people that are desperate. And that's one of the reasons I think one of the things I love, too, is that we have our meeting and then we have a step one meeting afterwards because we try to grab that people up. They're, they're desperate. They're, they're having, hopefully they're having that lucid interval. And this is what I believe, too. I believe there's this sacred moment where a clear message is carried and a heart and ears are open. That's what I call the lucid interval. I don't know when someone's heart or ears are open, so I have to, as a recovered person, try to make sure that I'm carrying a message that is congruent with this big book and the 12 steps, because God forbid their ears and, ours, ears and eyes are open and I'm spouting bullshit because I had a bad day. So I want to get that lucid interval, and, and if he wants to quit for good, this is not saying, are you willing to put the bagels down today? You know, no, that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to do it one day at a time. But the question is, are you done? Are, are you licked? And they says that over and over again in the big book. And would he go to any extreme to do so is where we're going to say, are you willing to call me at this time? Are you willing to commit your food? Are you willing to make these phone calls? Whatever the, the requirements that you have. And remember, they're scared. And a lot of them are still, you know, they're still in the food fog. So it's not like you're not going to go over it again. But at least you can, they, you're giving them that idea, and then you can review that with them when they start to get un, unfogged. Um, if we go over to page 91, it's, gonna, it's going to reiterate that again. It says, call on him while he, on the second full paragraph, last sentence. Call on him while he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. So that once again, this is, this is uh, my experience, too. I often hear people say, well, call me when you have two weeks of abstinence. I mean, if I can get two weeks of abstinence, I don't need you anymore, you know, because now I'm doing it on my own. You know, I hear that a lot in AA from people I know that they, that's why they go into the recovery houses. If Once they get 28 days and their wife lets them back in the house and they got their job back, they don't need no steps. They don't need no sponsor. So I like it when someone's coming off a run. Because that's when they're going to be more compliant. And that's when they're going to be... My, I remember a, a speaker saying, my recovery w began when I went from yeah, but to yes, ma'am. And when you are desperate, yes, ma'am is a lot easier to say. Um, that last paragraph on page 91. See your man alone if possible. At first, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of, of your eating. Tell him about your eating habits, your symptoms, your experiences to encourage him to talk about himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he is not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit. But say nothing for a moment of how that was accomplished. This was huge for me because it made me realize why I wasn't too effective, first of all, um, for many years in OA. I love the definition of sketch. It says a preliminary drawing giving the essential features without details. Because when I would tell my story in a way, 
I would talk about, if I was telling you today, I'd say I'm a 50-year-old woman. I've never been married. I don't have children. I went through 12 years of Catholic school. Now, have I, have I eliminated everybody in the room? Probably. But if I talk about all my attempts to stop eating, if I talk about Halloween being around the corner and having replenished my stash four or five times, and that my holiday was November 1st, not October 31st, because that was the day that I could get all the half-off candy, suddenly people's eyes are opening. And, and that's one of the things. I do a lot of work on the phone, um, but when, I, when I'm face-to-face, -face, I look for when are people's eyes popping open? When are they going like this? Because those are the stories that I'm going to draw someone into. Now, another thing that, you know, when I did beginners meetings um, that, that was ineffective or ineffective is I would talk to a newcomer about a fourth step and talk to them about amends. They're like, I came in here because I, I put 30 pounds on in the last two months. What are you talking about? So what they're saying is you're going to talk about the problem, the problem, the problem, and not about their problem, but about your problem. Because until someone knows they have compulsive or compulsive overeater, they don't care about the fourth step. They don't care about the ninth step. So I was putting the cart before the horse without realizing it. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. So it continues on, bottom of 91. Commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell them how baffled you were. Tell them about the struggles you made to stop, the mental twists, the mental inconsistencies with some of his own. That was really key for me. Because I thought compulsive overeating were the consequences. You know, um, so if somebody else was 50 pounds overweight and I was 80 pounds overweight, it meant I was, I was worse off. You know, if, if I, I remember thinking I wasn't bulimic because I only threw up three times a day and most of my sorority sisters would, would throw up five, ten times a day. So that was, that was the line for me. I was defining it by consequences. When someone really talked to me about the insanity in their head, especially in their insanity and when their head when they were abstinent, when they weren't eating. That caught my attention because that's, that was when I was truly suffering. The food would placate me for a while. My real suffering was between my ears. Okay? It says, if you're satisfied he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady, um, the queer mental conditions surrounding that first drink. That was a big thing too, to stress. It's not the third donut. It's, it's the decision to that first donut. Why can you not make that decision to have the first donut, which, which triggers the allergy. And I have to tell you, in the beginning, I used to try to qualify people all the time. I don't do that anymore. You know, to me, you know, if they're willing to do the work, jump on board. Because my belief is if you're not a real compulsive over you ain't going to do this work anyways. And what I found is that the people I thought would crash and burn wind up sailing through the steps. And the people I think are going to be rock stars wind up crashing and burning. I'm out of the God business. So I, I present the problem, and if someone wants to do the work, fabulous. Um, it says, let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea he can still control his drinking, tell him possibly he can if he's not too alcoholic, but insist if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. So once again, I'm using my own experience. You know, I remember taking someone through the doctor's opinion and asking her if she was willing to put all her alcoholic foods down, and she got quiet and she said, you know, I think I just need to be a little bit more abstinent than I was the last time I went through the steps. And I said, well, if, you know, that's great. I can't work with you if, if that's what you're thinking. Could you do me a favor? Let me know how that goes for you. So I'm not, I'm not you know, confronting, but I let them know until I was 100% abstinent and did each of the steps, I didn't get, I didn't get these results. 
And if they want to look at, if they want to try it, let them know. Let them let them do that. Um, continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk of the conditions of mind and, mind and body which accompanied it. Keep his attention focused mainly on the personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are lightly loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose. But you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. That's the difference between us and psychiatrists and doctors and family members. You know, I've been there, and I am no longer there, and I can show you the solution. So it's not a mean thing to get someone hopeless. You know, I think, I, you know, I think no offense to Will, but I think predominantly women, and I think women were socialized to make people feel better. And I, I have to fight against my instinct. Oh, honey, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Just sit down. You'll be okay. We'll love you till you love yourself. You know, just get comfortable. If I could get comfortable first of all, I wouldn't be in OA. But just get comfortable. It'll be okay. No, we, we, we're not leaving them in that hopelessness. So it's okay for them to feel hopeless. It's almost necessary for them to feel hopeless. You know, I think in OA specifically, we hug each other to death. You know, I remember listening to an AA speaker. He was from Louisiana, and he was talking about anonymity. And he was saying that, you know, anonymity is not in the rooms of, of AA. It's outside of AA. And he said there's a, a sister fellowship, OA, that has become, has taken anonymity to the point there is a secret society and they're dying. I thought that was so interesting. Because, you know, we don't want to tell on somebody if somebody picked up. How is that person going to have help? You know, if we're saying you need to find someone who's recovered to help you and then we're not going to tell people who our sponsor is or who the recovered people are, that's kind of mean. But if we, if we help them feel that hopelessness and then we say, tell, let me tell you how to get out of there, that, that's, what, that's our job to do that. It says, even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you that question if he will. Tell him exactly what happened to you and stress the spiritual feature freely. So the technique is problem, 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 problem. And then when that person asks, how did you escape? That's when we hit them with the solution. And we talk about the spiritual feature freely, but it says use everyday language. That's one of the reasons I don't use the word God. I always use the word power. I was schooled well by my first real agnostic. Because I don't know what that power is going to be for them. And honestly, it's not even, it's, a, it's incidental at this point. They just have to know they're helpless before they can even feel that hope. So it's the problem that I'm going to stress, and then I'm going to come in and, and give them hope and tell them about this, this, uh, this spiritual awakening. Now that last paragraph on page 93 talks about his religious education and training may be far superior to yours. And I can't imagine coming into AA, OA, NA, and being a priest, a nun, a rabbi, and being told my problem is my relationship with God. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what that's like. But what I like to look at this is people whose 12-step whose education is much better than mine. I mean, I have to tell you, when I first, you know, when I first, some, you know, six, I've been in OA for, for 17 years, and someone confronted me that I was in a five-year relapse, and they're telling me what to do here, and my... Even though I'm dying, my thought was, I was your effing intergroup chair. What are you going to teach me? I get that a lot from people who are in other fellowships. This is my book, not your book. What are you going to teach me? So what they're saying here is, is he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. 
So I'm not telling them, yeah, you know what, you probably know a lot more about 12 steps than I do. You probably know a lot more about Overeaters Anonymous than I do. But let me tell you how I'm free. Let me tell you how I've had seven years where I haven't wanted to eat. Not that I've just been abstinent, but I've had seven years where I have not wanted to eat. And that's going to get their curiosity up. It says, he may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. You know, I think a lot of people in OA have a spiritual understanding and very few have a spiritual experience. There's many people who know this book inside and out that are in relapse right now. So knowing this book is not enough. It is actually applying the work in this book that's going to give us the freedom. And I'm not going to slam someone over the head with that, but I'm going to let them know what my experience is. And so that's where it says, admit he probably knows more about than you do, but call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. So at page top of 94, it's talking about outline the program of action, explaining how you made a self-appraisal, how you straighten out your past. So that's when you're going to bring in the idea of what the plan of action is. Now, there, there was an advantage back then because nobody knew about AA, so everything was new. Nowadays, most people, even if they're not in a 12-step program, their dad was, their mother was. So this is not even new information for them, so you're trying to break their prejudices. Um, but because of time, I'm going to go a little bit quicker. So it talks on the uh, bottom of that first paragraph. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you have all perhaps, all, perhaps made a friend. Maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He'll be more likely to follow your suggestions. So that kind of is our, um, our job, is to disturb people. You know, I, there's... Um, a saying, and I'm going to mess it up, I know. It says, it says uh, honesty without compassion is cruel, but compassion without honesty kills. So what we have to do is we have to be honest with people and be compassionate, but to, to be totally compassionate and not let them know this is a deadly disease, that you can die in this disease, that the consequences of not doing this work is you will go back to the food. And it's, it's, you know, it's vital for us to relay that information. If we go to page 95... There's three ifs. If he is not interested in your solution, if he is sincerely interested in your solution, and if he thinks he can do the job in some other way. This is great information. I always, this is a common question. Well, what do I do with this person or that person that doesn't want to do the work or they picked up or, or whatever the question is? So it says, if he's not interested in your solution, if he expects you to only be a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his spree, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This he may do after he gets hurt some more. So I have to, I, that's one of the things I talk about, too. I'm not your girlfriend. I'm not your counselor. I'm not your diet buddy. I'm here to help you have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. If that's what you want, let's go. And if someone's really looking for someone that they can just call at night so they don't pick up that night because they need to complain, that's not the kind of sponsor I am. So I have to be honest with that. What, what I find is they talk about dropping him. I get fired a lot. I don't fire a lot of people, but I do get dropped a lot because I'm really, really um, strong on that. You have to do the work. And if someone's not doing the work, you're opting out. And they'll say that I dropped them because, I, because I'm saying, well, until you do the assignment, call me back when you're done. And they feel like they're fired. So 
and says may he, after he gets hurt some more, what I have found for myself is I don't want get to get between that person and that step and that person's step one experience. Because I cannot convince anyone they're a compulsive overeater. The food is going to do that. We work step one in the dark corners of a McDonald's parking lot. That's where we work it. And until someone has that experience, I can say the most perfect thing in the world, and it's not going to matter. I often think of this. Um, my mom's father was an active alcoholic till the day he died, my grandfather. And in high school, I remember asking her one time, Kim, I mean, Mom, uh, you know, did Grandpa ever try to stop drinking? And she laughed. She's like, oh, Kim, no. She's, my mom's one of four girls. Mom would come, and she would wake us all up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and my dad would be in the bushes, and we'd pull him in, and he'd have to throw up all over himself, and we'd clean him up, and we'd put him in bed, and every day he woke up in clean white sheets. Why would he ever stop drinking? And I often think of that. Am I making it so comfortable for them, someone to stay in the disease that they're never going to take action? The second one, if he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, tell him to read the book at this interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. He should not be pushed or prodded by you or his wife or his friends. If he is to find God, the desire must come from within. So I set a schedule, but if someone is not, I mean, it amazes me sometimes how irrelevant I am. <laughs> I, I really am irrelevant. Because if someone wants this message, I can't stop them. And if someone doesn't want this message, I can't make them do anything. So what I'm doing there is I'm just trying to make sure that the message I'm carrying is clear and if they're going to jump on. I don't have someone specifically read, read this book. I have a, I've personally developed a, a, um, a doctor's opinion assignment. And, you know, half the time, people don't call me. When a sponsee gets through to step 12, they often tell them to grab three to five people to do the doctor's opinion with. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't do that. It's too many people. I'm like, you're lucky if two of them call you. You're going to have to offer it to that many people in order to get one or two people to call you because it's hard to get people to do this work. And the next time is if he thinks he can do the job in some other way or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked for us. So if someone wants to go through and use a conventional diet program, maybe they want to just be in another 12-step fellowship thinking they can work their food stuff out in Al-Anon or AA or something, I encourage them to do that. I, I personally do not believe that God is contained in this first 164 pages. He's, my God's much bigger than that. But the only thing I have to share is what happened to me using, the, using this method. So I have to be humble enough to say, I can't show you um, this Hazelton book or I can't show you um, the AA 12 and 12. I can't show you other books within Overeaters Anonymous because they didn't work for me. But I encourage you to, to do that and let me know how it works. I'm fascinated by people. Even the big book, there's different approaches to the big book. I love hearing how other people approach the big book. So every time I work with someone, I have to get quiet. Do I think I can be useful? People say, well, if someone picks up, do you drop them? There's no set answer. I get quiet with my higher power and I say, can I be useful to this person? If the answer is yes, I continue if they, if they put the food down again. If it's no, then I tell them they need to find another teacher. You know, it's my ego that wants me to, to be in there because I want to be the one, as Maria was talking, I want to be the one that, that sees the flowers versus the one that plants the seeds because I want the kudos for that. So my job and I think of the people, and I'm with this, I think of the people in my life, in OA, that have made the biggest impact, were not my sponsors. And they're people who don't even know. 
Like I remember being in that Friday night how meeting and and telling this woman how I can't stop eating. Da 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 da. And she calmly listened to me and said, "Did you ever notice all those products have flour in it?" I almost punched her in the face. I don't know who that person was. I have no idea. Probably somebody I even know today. I don't know who it is now. But that person saved my life. That was the person who taught me about the allergy. So that's what this this message is carrying. Am I carrying that message? And the 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 results is up to a power greater than myself and greater than them. So I'm going to stop here.